Today we'll continue our venture through the story of the woman at the well and Jesus' conversation as we'll take on the rising action and the climax. So get ready, because Bible Study Podcast is coming at you. Welcome to another edition of Bible Study Podcast. My name is Justin, and I I hope you're ready for another great adventure in the Word of God. For those of you who have never listened to the podcast before, welcome. We're glad to have you join us, and and I hope the podcast will be helpful for you as you study the Bible on your own. For those returning, thanks for your continued support and the good reviews that you've been giving out. It, It really is appreciated. If either one of you, the new or the returning listeners, would like to get a hold of me, Feel free to email me at any time at BibleStudyPodcastJustin at gmail.com. You can send me any comments, questions, prayer requests, or praises that you would like, and, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. So thanks, and, uh, and I look forward to reading all of your emails. Further, I'd like to remind you to be listening to this and all the other podcasts in the coming weeks as big news is coming for BibleStudyPodcast.org. So just be listening. Finally, I'd like to thank those of you who are praying for me and and for the ministry on a regular basis. Some of you have emailed me to tell me about it, and and it truly means a lot to me. So uh, with that in mind, let's go together to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we turn to you to learn from your word and to learn more about you. You have created us in your own image, and so we pray that you would teach us to walk in your ways and to live in your truth. Help us to worship you with our lives and walk with you in faith. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we get started today, I I would just like to briefly remind you that we're going through chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, and in particular, we're going through the first half of the chapter, which covers the conversation of Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, as you may remember, we're handling this as a story, and so I began last week to walk you through some basic elements of a story And we covered the setting and the conflict last week. As you hopefully remember, we said last week that the conflict of this story seems to be verse 10, where Jesus tells the woman, If you knew the gift of God and you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. From this conflict, a two-part question arose. What is the living water and how do I get it? As we mentioned last week, It is just that question which we will seek to answer today as we go through the rising action and build to the climax. So without any further ado, let's get right into our passage today, where we'll pick up at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where, then, do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Now the first thing that we see in these two verses is that the woman seems to be on a different page than what Jesus is trying to tell her. As we mentioned last week, the term living water could be taken in two ways. One is a reference to the Holy Spirit, but the other as water that is running hard, you know, a flowing spring of sorts. So while Jesus is talking about the first, the woman's still thinking about the second, and so we have somewhat of a disconnect here between the two. Now we'll see this a little more developed as we continue. But it should not be surprising to see that the woman did not naturally lean towards thinking of the living water as something of a spiritual nature. 
Instead, she thought only of the physical well that is before her as she speaks. You know, a well that was probably well over a hundred feet deep. As even today, it stands around 75 feet deep after years and years of debris falling into it. So it, it makes sense for the woman's first instinct to ask, How are you going to get living water? That well is deep, and you don't have anything to draw water with. However, I firmly believe that she knew this was not only a physical item in question, as evidenced by her response in verse 12. For she asked Jesus, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well for us and our cattle, and even drank from it himself. You see, the Samaritans claimed to derive their ancestry through Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh, who were the grandsons of Jacob. The Jews also claimed ancestry through Jacob, so perhaps the woman was trying to show the Jewish rabbi that was standing before her now that her people were just as important. Remember from last time that she is well aware of the way that Jews usually view Samaritan. So in her question, I, I think she's showing us that she not only misunderstands this living water to be physical water, but also that she is using this to make a point about her own standing, trying to say that she is not as lowly as she assumes he sees her. Well, Jesus sees that she clearly does not get what he is trying to tell her. So he says again in verses 13 and 14, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Now we begin to see what this living water is about. Jesus starts by comparing it to the physical water that is present, saying that if you drink that water, you will thirst again. However, if you drink of his living water, you will never thirst again, for it will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see, friends, this is a comparison between the water of the well, which took hard work to pull up, and the living water, that is, the Holy Spirit, who brings salvation to the person who believes. Not only will that person who believes receive salvation, but there will be in him a well of water springing up, insinuating that others around him will also be able to drink of this water. So in other words, through the believer's witness, others may also come to salvation. It's quite a picture that we're beginning to see here of these living waters. They are indeed the Holy Spirit who impresses upon the hearts of sinners their need for a Savior and quenches the inner thirst of those who trust Him. However, the woman's response is, is somewhat puzzling and, and pretty sad, in, in fact. Her response does not seem to imply that she is still ignorant of the concept of living waters, but rather that she's just selfish. As we read in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She was not interested in what Jesus was offering. Her thoughts were not on eternal life, but only on herself and the work she had to do to get water every day. And so her selfishness comes out as she attempts to just get out of more work, showing her sinful nature and her disposition against doing the will of God. However, Jesus, the master teacher, sees where this is headed and does something masterful at this point. He sees her need immediately and goes right to the gut as he tells her in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. Now I would imagine that her response in verse 17 is pretty quick. She shoots back, I have no husband. But Jesus, who knows the heart of man, as we mentioned back in John 2, 24 and 25, answers her objections in verse 17 and 18 saying, 
You correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. You see, Jesus masterfully takes the woman right to the point that she needs to see. He takes her to the fact that no matter how smart she may think she is, no matter how good she may think she is, she is still a sinner. She lives in sin, and she can't hide it. Friends, let me remind you of something at this point. Jesus also knows your sin, and until you turn to him in faith, you remain in that sin, lost and with no hope, just as this woman in the story does. And so with one swooping action, Jesus has changed the woman's view somewhat. However, I wouldn't go as far as say that she is done arguing with Jesus yet, as she does something a bit peculiar in the following verses, verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The first thing the woman does is to affirm something she believes to be true about Jesus now, and that is that he is a prophet. She gives a very positive affirmation of this. Of course, she really has no other recourse than this action. After all, how else would you explain that someone knows out of the blue that you had five husbands and are now living with another man? But I think her unbelief is still evident as she turns in verse 20 to bring up a theological debate. Now perhaps the situation was getting a bit too personal for the woman. Perhaps she was uncomfortable by the way that Jesus was guiding this discussion. Perhaps she realized that if she followed down Jesus' line of reasoning, she would have to admit something that she really was not willing to give, that she was a sinner. So rather than take on that reality, she attempts to throw off the Jewish rabbi, in fact, the great teacher who sits before her. She throws up a red herring, an argument that really has no point except to distract the teacher. That argument is comprised of two options and a choice. She notes that the Samaritans have worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, a belief that could be traced back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where the people of Israel stood on Mount Gerizim to recite blessings and on Mount Ebal to recite curses regarding the covenant for when they entered the promised land. This is what the Samaritans thought was the way they should worship. The Jews, however, felt that all worship should be at Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, the place where God had commissioned Solomon and the place where the temple of God had been built. So she basically brings up an old argument between the Samaritans and the Jews and asks Jesus to answer which one is right. What we learn from Jesus on this occasion is spectacular and is something that we should remember as we engage in apologetics and evangelism. When the woman's sin was revealed, her next move was to bring up some point of doctrine that, that was controversial, seemingly to sidetrack the master. Her methods were to kind of delay him from coming to the conclusion he was going on and distract him. But Jesus doesn't take the bait, as neither should we. Instead, he takes the conversation to a whole new level as he responds in verses 21 through 24. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
First, he tells her that the debate she is asking about is something that in truth does not matter. He puts it in its proper place. Theology has its place. I think we should talk about these things. We should talk about the things that are debatable. But, as Jesus does here, I think we should remember those are in-house debates. The style of worship you have, the style of deacons you have, you know, things, the style of baptism even, the things that are sometimes stumbling blocks for people that are sometimes brought up as a way to start theological arguments. These are important, but these are not important in the context of what's going on here. These are not important in the fact that you're talking to someone who, if you do not share the gospel, will end up in hell. And you're being distracted from your major goal, and that is to lead sinners to Christ. So he tells her, that debate does not matter right now. Why? Because the time is coming when you will not worship here, or you won't worship in Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Well, anticipating that very response, Jesus continues by showing the woman that the basis of her argument is seemingly folly. As he points out her error and then corrects it, saying, You worship what you don't know. Now, he's talking about the Samaritans. He says, You Samaritans are worshiping something that's not truly God. Now, this is probably in reference to the fact that Samaritans had a practice of kind of synchronizing the view of the God of Israel with views of false gods and the gods of the lands, and to make it essentially an idol. So they have this mixed view of God. So Jesus points this out, and he declares that we, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation comes from the Jews. Now this is an important point to make. It's not that salvation is only available to the Jews. He didn't say that. It's that it comes from the Jews, namely a Jew, Jesus Christ. Now, having corrected her view of worship, Jesus goes on to make a very important point. As he notes that the time is coming, you know, referring back to 20, verse 21, when true worshipers will not have to go here or to Jerusalem, but rather they will worship in spirit and in truth. Now, when we worship something, we are acknowledging the worth of the object. So Jesus is saying that when we worship God, we should do so in spirit spirit rather than by material things and we should do so in truth rather than in falsehood these are the type of people that jesus says the father wants as his worshipers the type who realize that god is worthy of our praise and worthy of our admiration because he's above all material things and they will look to him in truth rather than distorting god's image and effectively making an idol for themselves Jesus concludes this part of the discussion by telling the woman why true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And it's because God is spirit. Now what is meant by this is that God cannot be confined to any location. God cannot be put into a box. He is everywhere present. It's known as omnipresence. And he cannot be adequately expressed by abstract ideas, which are usually impersonal. He, he can't be expressed by that. He can't be expressed by physical likeness of an idol. No, God is spirit, and thus should be worshipped accordingly. Only one could truly represent him, and that one is the word who became flesh, Jesus. He alone can represent the majesty of God, for he is God. This is what leads us to the climax of this entire story, as the woman in verse 25 notes that she knows the Messiah is coming, the one who will reveal all things to us. 
Now, she's still tied to her roots as a Samaritan here, clinging to the idea that the Messiah who is to come would be the servant spoken of in Deuteronomy 18, which we referred to in a previous podcast. He would be like Moses, who would come to solve all problems. He would give us all knowledge. Jesus' answers had led her to the only conclusion possible. The only way to this living water, this salvation by the Holy Spirit, was the Messiah, the Christ to come. You cannot worship the Father in spirit and truth unless there is someone to come alongside you that is the God-man. And in case the woman could not figure out still, Jesus delivers in verse 26 what I believe the climax of this entire story is when he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the Christ that it was to come. He directly tells the woman, directly reveals that he indeed is the God-man, the one who would come so that true worshipers may worship in spirit and truth, the one who would give the spirit without measure and would give anyone, including the woman, living water, after which they would never thirst again. This is the point of the whole story. What is the living water? It is indeed the, the Holy Spirit who saves the soul of men. But how does one get it? By Christ alone. With such an epiphany, I personally kind of feel the need just to praise God that we've been given a way to be restored to a right relationship with God. That we can worship Him in truth and in spirit. And that way is none other than that of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, Our time has come to an end, but please do not go on through life if there are questions in your mind, questions in your heart. Christ has come that you may have life, really have life. He has come to give you a drink so that you will never thirst again. Please listen to his offer and turn to him. Next time we will be covering the falling action of the story. We'll see what happens after this is realized that it is through Christ the living waters can be found. So stay tuned as we follow the narrative of the woman at the well and the Savior. But until then, friends, may God bless and keep you. And how could words express? And how could songs contain the richness of your love, the fullness of your name? For you are higher than. Every earthly thing You have shown your love In your perfect name Jesus Christ Prince of Peace Jesus Christ Savior King Don't your greatness You came